My role today will be facilitation um, of discussion. I'm not here to tell you all the answers. There is way too much stuff to know, and my brain is only so big. And so your job is going to be to, you know, what we're going to see, you're going to see most of the, the uh, presentation is actually going to be video clips, and we're going to actually interact, um, and we're going to react to what we're seeing on the screen. And so we're going to kind of pick apart some arguments, and we're going to, uh, we're going to use our collective brain and our collective reasoning to be able to come to a logical conclusion. Um, how many people know who Bill Maher is? Raise your hands. For those who don't know who Bill Maher is, he's a uh, very liberal, um, very clearly atheistic individual. Um, he was born to a Jewish and a Catholic mother and father. So his, uh, his worldview is a little bit skewed in the way in which he... Uh, he looks at things as well. So, before we really get into it further, let's have a quick prayer and, and begin. Heavenly Father, we pray that in this morning we can, we can look and we can see the attacks that the world is bringing against us. We can see the, the struggles in which we will have as believers as we discuss the gospel with those that don't know it and those who are vehemently opposed. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to testify and witness to those around. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to be able to speak the truth in love to those around us. And we thank you for all of this, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, first question. What is apologetics? Some very basic definitions. Anybody? Very good. So defense of the faith, giving a, giving a reason for the hope that lies within you. And we'll touch on some of the verses afterwards. Let's give the actual, actual definition. It comes from the Greek word apologia. That's why it's not, we're, we're not apologizing. It's the Greek word for apologia, which, which means a defense. Uh, a branch of theology is concerned with defending the faith. Right? That's what we have to talk about, the truth of Christian doctrines. Now, I specifically put down doctrines here because we're not defending our apostolic Christian traditions when we talk about apologetics. We can discuss that those, those um, things with others and, and explain them to others, but that's not apologetics. That's just describing of who we are and what we do. It is, it is a formalized structure. It's not something that we do loosely. It's not something that we... You know, oh, you know, we're just going to kind of give an off-the-cuff off the answer. Um, you have to kind of think about it logically. Um, a lot of apologetics comes down to logical thinking. Um, that's easier for some and not so much for others. So you have to be cautious of, uh, of the type of arguments. In the video clips you're going to see, uh, there's some interaction with Bill Maher and those that are professed to be Christians. And so we're going to we're going to kind of pick apart both arguments because we're going to look at um, the, good th the good points that are brought out by the, by the Christians interacting, and we're also going to look at some of the bad examples of how not to try to do apologetics. So we will just continue on. Uh, 
Where does it say in the Bible? A couple of scripture references. The first one that was referenced, and where does that come from? First Peter 3.15 But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is, that is in you with meekness and fear. Um, probably two of the key most, two key words um, in the second half of the verse are with meekness and with fear. We really have to be very cautious about what we are bringing forward. We have to be very clear about the message and the attitude in which we bring it. If we are doing it in pride and we know the answers and everybody else is going to you know, learn from us, that's not doing it with meekness. It's certainly not getting us to this point. So we have to keep that in mind. Oftentimes, there are those um, who have said, you know, our, our walk of life is the, the only Bible that we need to do. We don't need to say anything. They're going to know by our walk. If they know by our walk, they're going to ask us a question. And if they ask us a question, we are required to have a ready answer. Okay? Now, that ready answer doesn't have to be right on the spot. That ready answer can come in time. That ready answer can say, you know what, I don't know right now. That may be one of the most honest answers that you can give, and it will be very effective when you come back to them and you do the follow-up. And you say, you know what, you asked a really good question and I didn't have the answer for it. But I did some research and here's what I found. That's an effective way. That's going, again, about it with meekness. You don't know all the answers. Don't expect to know all the answers. Next one. Beloved, when I, gave, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. That is, that's our next. We have to earnestly do it. We have to do it with, with such vigor that those that ask the question will get an answer. We have to take this very, very seriously. All right, next. So this is, this is going to be our first one. And this is, I, I kind of titled this, Why Do We Need to Study Apologetics? This is Bill Maher uh, from his movie Religious. If anybody has seen it, you'll see a number of clips throughout this. Um, it is, I've, I've edited um, to edit out some foul language and some inappropriate material that Bill has a tendency to put in. Um, and so what I've done, this is, this is Bill, and you're wondering why it's so narrow within the, uh, the confines of the church. He's gone to a church truck stop where they have a trailer set up as a church. Um, it's like a traveling church to, uh, to all the different truck stops. And this is his first stop as he goes to, to discuss a number of things. So just play through it, and we're, what we're going to do is we're going to discuss before so, and after. As I was looking in the air, I just jotted down a few questions that came to my mind. Are you ever bothered by many, many things that are in Christianity that are not in the Bible, like original sin, immaculate conception, the virgin birth is only in two of the Gospels, popes, are you worried that these things okay, came not from the founders, the people who wrote this book, but from, and this is indisputable, but from men, from human beings who came If you want to go back to scientific proof, I think it was the Turban of Shroud or whatever that was went around a while back. I right. didn't get involved. Shroud of Turin? They took uh, blood samples from it, and it was a female blood with a male figure. Okay, the only possible way that could happen was that uh, the Holy Ghost in, impregnated 
uh, Mary because it would have been female blood because it would have been the only blood flowing through her. It's a fake thing. But why is faith good? Why is believing something without evidence good? I'm just asking questions. Okay. All right. So you can kind of get a feel for where, for those that are not familiar with Bill Maher, this is Bill Maher's style. He's going to ask questions in a very provocative way. Let's talk about the first part of the, uh, when he comes in. What's the, what are the first things that he brings up? What are the, what's, what's his first argument? Things that are not in the Bible. So what does he list off? Immaculate conception. Original sin. Virgin birth and popes. Now, which of those are in the Bible clearly? The virgin birth. Original sin. Immaculate conception. Well, we know the popes aren't in there, so that's an easy one. Uh, so, of the four that he lists, three are in the Bible. How is he saying that they're not? Oh, very good. The basis of his argument, which essentially made it true, but actually, obviously, we know it's not true because they're in the Bible, is that not in the Bible does it say original sin, not in the Bible does it say immaculate conception, not in the Bible does it say birth and birth are just two words. Okay. We know that everybody's born with sin. We do know that Mary was a virgin, and we do know that it was immaculate conception that prophesied, and then they're confirmed again in the New Testament. Very good. Excellent. That's how we go about to begin the discussion. We identify the false elements of his argument, and then we carry on. The next part of his argument, and, and it's something that he does uh, throughout, and you'll see him use um, the word fact. What do we talk about when we talk about facts? Evidence. Evidence. What else? Data. Science, data. An established belief in many times is what is called a fact. An established belief is, is called a fact in a lot of instances. In this case, what do we have? He says, and this is an indisputable fact, that it's written by men. Not the founders, but by men. He makes it a clear point to try to, try to de-escalate the element of the, the miraculous work of the, of the Scripture. He takes away from the foundation of, of what, we, what, we, what we're coming to. He, he attacks it by saying, look, there's nothing in here, and this is written by men. But he's got half the truth there, because men did write. Correct, through the inspiration of God. Right, when he don't have that. Well, of course. He's just looking at it as a book. And, and he later on references that just as a book. All right? And then so we're gonna, we'll discuss his arguments later on. Let's talk about the pitfalls of the second part of it, which was the individual who was trying to answer Bill back. If you could understand his turban of shroud, uh, something like that. Okay, very good. You've already presented your evidence and your argument as hearsay. Automatic. Excellent. You qualified yourself before you even started. Excellent. And then he didn't go 
could have absolutely defended against those, you know, those accusations or those attacks from the bottom. Instead, he went from something that's very, you know, debatable. Ex excellent. And that's, that's exactly what we don't want to do. And so let's flip to the next slide. Brief summary. Here's what we got. The fundamentals of our faith aren't written in the Bible. These are the arguments that he gave. Just because the words don't appear in the Bible, therefore they aren't in the Bible, the concepts. Popes are not part of Christian faith. Uh, indisputable facts are, are listed, and he considers that. And the last question, why is faith a good thing? That's the question he asks. Never gives a chance to answer, but, but he, he asks the question. This it was a great example of, again, what not to do. When you can't explain something, it's a faith thing. It's, how can we use that as our default position? There is, faith, there, there is absolutely a faith element, and we cannot deny that. But that cannot be our default position. That can't be when we don't have anything else, uh, it must be faith. Okay, all right. No, we have to do something. We have to have a better answer than that. So... You'll see Bill's asked a couple of questions later on um, throughout, and you're going to see some interesting, uh, interesting elements. Next one. Some poor answers. Pointing to the Shroud of Turin as something is something that's disputed even amongst Christians. Pointing to something extra-biblical to answer biblical questions when you can answer it from the Bible. Again, a, a point that was raised earlier. So rule number one, when using extra-biblical information, make sure it's not disputed within Christianity because you're going to get your argument shredded in a heartbeat. Secondly, if they ask you a biblical question out of the Bible, answer from the Bible when possible. Two basic rules. We're going to have a total of five rules throughout at the end of it, and we'll summarize them accordingly. Next. All right. Gospel of I don't know. This is what he's... Let me ask you this question. What if we write and you wrong? We're we going to make it and you okay. ain't. Come on, believe in Jesus. What do you have to lose? <laughs> it's like the lotto. It can't get saved if you don't play. Yeah, you could be right. I don't think it's very likely. But yes, you could be right. Because my big thing is, I don't know. That's what I preach. I preach the gospel of I don't know. I mean, that's what I'm here promoting, doubt. That's my product. The other guys are selling certainty, not me. <laughs> I'm on the corner with doubt. All right. So let's talk about this one a little bit. What's the question that's asked? What's the first question that was asked of Bill? What if you're wrong? What if you're wrong and we're right? What happens when the other guys ask you that question? What if you don't have some point of reference? How can you say you're right or wrong? Again, a very good, very good argument. Discussion of what, what is absolute moral truth, what is right, what is wrong. If you take someone who has no belief in the Bible, then you have no point of reference for that. Excellent, excellent point. There are, in this set of rhetoric, there are certain invalid questions, okay, and that to me falls into the category of an invalid question because they're asking you to support the opposite of what you believe. Well, why would you want to do that? Exactly. Exactly. Again, a basic logic element. Let's step, through the, let's step through the thought process. When you ask a question, make sure you're ready for, for what the answer is. 
um, in, in my profession, um, as, a, as an inspector, um, I deal with people when people get their arms ripped off and everything else like that, and I go in and investigate the injury. The first thing that they teach us at police college is if you're going to ask a question in the interview process, make sure you know what answer you're looking for. Because if you don't want that answer, you don't want to ask the question. And, and the same thing applies here. We want to make sure that the answer we're looking for, we're going to ask the right question to get there. And oftentimes, you know, he talks about he's promoting doubt. He's the one that's here promoting doubt. We do have certainty. He is right about that. We, here, we are here claiming certainty. That, that, is an absolute, that is a truth. No question about that. What we have to do is plant the doubt throughout as we, as we go on. That's what I was going to say. Like, um, we have like, a college group in Mansfield that's been discussing a lot of apologetics. And, oh, okay. Oh. Wow. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, in Mansfield, we have a college group that's been discussing a lot of apologetics and like, um, just how to do that and everything. And something that we were discussing is that when someone asks you a question, you don't need to respond necessarily with an answer, but rather ask the question in return just to understand really where they're coming from or just to clarify because it's so vague. Yeah, what if you're right or wrong? So what are you, what are you talking about? Right or wrong, like what are you saying you're right about and what are you saying that I'm wrong about? Exactly. Exactly specific. So asking a question in response to a question. Like Jesus. That's exactly. And if you, if you turn to Jesus, oftentimes when he got questioned with those nuanced questions throughout the scripture, he always answered in a question back for clarity. And that's, we want to clarify what the argument is before really getting into it. Okay, this is, this is Bill, again, asking loaded questions. Keep in mind the disciplines that we're talking about here when we're talking about the Bible versus we're talking about science. So, um, Dr. Collins, you are a brilliant, brilliant scientist, the head of the Human Genome Project. Now, here's what's so puzzling, is that you are the one scientist, the one famous scientist anyway, who's also religious. Explain that to me. I would argue that if you look at the evidence, that historical evidence of Christ's existence is overwhelming. What evidence? I mean, I've never even heard anyone propose that there's evidence. There's been proof that there is a Jesus. That's, that's been proven. That hasn't been proven. How do you figure it out? When I read the New Testament, it reads to me as the record of eyewitnesses who put down what they saw. Well, they, they, you know they weren't eyewitnesses. They were close to that. They no. were within a couple of decades of eyewitnesses. Okay. Would that stand up in a laboratory as, as absolute foolproof evidence that something happened? You are setting up a standard for proof that I think it would really be an almost impossible standard to meet. No gospel tells us what he was doing when he was a young man. You know, we see Jesus as an infant, and then we kind of pick up the story when he's 30. I think Jesus was probably an awkward teenager. Big Jufro, bad at sports. Here I am. The records we have are all gospels. Gospels are not history. Right. Gospel writers never met Jesus, either did St. Paul. No one who wrote about Jesus ever met him. How can you go back into the prophets and the prophets specifically specifies that certain things... Well, first of all, the New Testament came after the Old Testament. We agree to that? 
I'd read that, but that, that doesn't okay. mean anything. All it means is the people who wrote the New Testament read the Old Testament and then made the prophecies fit. They can't Boy. make it fit if something didn't happen. Of course they can. They placed Then, then you're saying the Bible is fictitious. I am. Can't be. I am. We do all know that those texts don't match. Yeah, sure. So Would you expect them to? I'm surprised that things that are very important to the story, like the virgin birth, isn't in all four of them. Wouldn't you really expect that kind of discordance when you're thinking about the way in which these documents came into being? But you'd think if you were one of Christ's biographers, that would be sort of an important thing not to leave out. Oh, God, he was also born of a virgin. They don't notice the virgin birth. You know, they, I think that is something that, if you're any sort of a reporter, you put into the story. What editor looks at the facts and goes, uh, yeah, but take out the thing about the virgin birth. That's not interesting. <laughs> but you guys aren't dumb. You're smart people. How can smart people... How can they believe in the talking snake and people lived to 900 years old and the virgin birth? And, you know, that's, that's my question. You guys have your own questions. Right. Pray for me. All right. There's a lot to talk about here. First of all, let's start out. What were the loaded questions? Well, let's start out. What was the first, what was the first question he, he brought up? He's talking with, with uh, the scientist, Dr. Collins. What, is, what does he reference? What standard of proof he's going to use? He re, he's speaking with a biologist, and he's discussing what about the Bible? The history of the Bible. So, does it stand to reason that you would ask a biologist about history? Of course not. Who do you go to? Historians. Exactly. People that understand the historicity of the Bible. And there is a ton of historicity of the Bible. I think the problem is, though, if you would have gone to a historian, you would have learned things like the first written record of Alexander the Great came hundreds of years after he existed. The same with a lot of the great thinkers of the Greek era. And then you'd also find out that a fellow named by the first name of story, I can't remember his last name, he wrote the entirety of the uh, Viking and Nordic gods in the 1300s. And he basically wrote it as saying, yeah, this was the funny, stupid stuff that people used to believe in here, but he was actually a Christian. And a lot of people theorized that even the, the things that he wrote about the Norse gods had Christian elements added to them. Uh, so that would be more understandable to the Nordic people. Absolutely. And, and it's, it's, it's fascinating when you take just a, a basic argument there. Um, you look at the historicity. Homer's Iliad is considered the most one of the most historically reliable books. Homer's Iliad was written 400 years after the original telling of the story. They have, and, and, it, and, and the reason it's considered one of the most historically accurate is they have, I think, 35 texts complete text of Homer's Iliad. The New Testament alone, we have 25,000 copies of the manuscripts within the Dead Sea Scrolls. And those were written within 30 years of the scripture. Or it was 30 years within, within the happening. So within the lifespan of the individuals walking that, that time period, which do you think is a little more historically accurate? We also have extra-biblical information that can back up what the history of the Bible is. 
Anybody know what those are? Josephus, a contemporary Jewish scholar at the time, um, who was not a Christian, um, clearly didn't profess it, and backs up not only the history of uh, the actual fact, which was in question, the fact of Jesus' actual existence, but also backs up his, his mission, his ministry, the miracles that he did, as well as the fact that he died, and it was reported that he was resurrected and, and had ascended up to heaven. So there are extra-biblical information that would back up some of that stuff. Plus the fact that he's, he's saved, plus maybe That's correct. Where was John? Where was uh, Matthew? And Paul? Did he not meet Jesus? Sure did. The resurrected Jesus. Correct. You see how it works, though. Go ahead. Oh, it's not. Yeah. Oh, oh no, because he does go to a couple other guys throughout um, that are able to answer the questions, and you can see the editing throughout it is just, it's choppy because as they answer him, he just, he picks out a you know, brief phrase here or there. You're right. This is the extreme, and, I, and the reason I wanted to show this extreme is they, you may only get one of these arguments at a time. This is kind of, we're, we're jamming it all into one, and you're, you're getting the worst of the worst to be able to be prepared for what's coming, you know, for what, what is going to come against you. And so, that's what, you know, I, I wanted to cover this out, and I wanted loaded questions. It was very important as you look at some of the questions, and, and you, you have to understand, again, Bill Maher being a cynic, and Bill Maher, being very cunning in the way in which he's doing it. And he starts out, Dr. Collins, you're a brilliant, brilliant scientist. And you're the only one that, that is religious. Really? Um, it, it's actually, I'll tell you a very brief story. Um, this, this past week I was working with our uh, industrial hygienist on a number of cases at work. And if you want to know a cynic... Um, he is a professing atheist, and we get along very well. We have a very good rapport. The entire week, at least one time a day, all of this stuff started coming up. And I know the Lord really working on me, preparing me for, for the forum, uh, because everything that I was working on at night, preparing, I was bringing to him during the day. And it was kind of that sounding board that, okay, yes, right, we're, we're, we're getting there. Um, and we were actually at an at a, uh, interview. At a, we were interviewing a, a, one of the individuals in, in the case we were working on. And she was a professing Christian. And in her, in her house, there was, I mean, you couldn't look at a wall where there wasn't something Christian-oriented. And her whole life was about professing Christ. And she, you know, she would make comments throughout. 
And obviously, I'm accepting the comments, and he's, you can see him, he just kind of stops and, and right away tries to ignore it and carry on with the next question that he wanted to get to. And, uh, and so she out and out asked him, she said, you know, are you a believer? And he says, no, I'm a scientist. And I said, you know, it's funny, we just had this conversation yesterday. He said, I'm a scientist too. And what we want to make sure, we're not pitting science against religion. We're not pitting science against faith. Dr. Collins is by no means the only scientist that's religious. All right? We want to carry, carry that thought. Here's a rule number three. Don't, don't, answer, or don't ask a question you don't have an answer to. That what's, what if you're right and I'm wrong? And don't ask, again, about the, the things about this, within the Scripture that you don't have an answer to. It's not about winning or losing the debate. It's about winning souls to Christ. We have the answers, and they're trying to place doubt in our mind. We need to be very careful. We have assurance. We are the ones that have the answers. We need to be able to bring it to them. We need to make them doubt their position. Keep your study of disciplines clear at all times. If you're talking historicity, talk historicity, but don't let it go into the, uh, into the uh, biology or physics or whatever different realm. Keep your disciplines, disciplines very clear. Know your Bible and know about your Bible. Uh, there's some great extra-biblical examples, Josephus, and uh, there's a couple of other ones that, uh, that you can reference throughout. Back up the accuracy and historicity of the Bible and the actual life of Christ using something other than just the Bible. Because again, if the Bible is, is your only reference point and they don't acknowledge the Bible, you're going to have to prove to them why the Bible is accurate. So there's archaeology, there's, there's the historicity that we know within the scriptures and how accurate and reliable it is. Next. Rule number four. The burden of proof is on them, not on you. They ask you, Show me, prove to me that there's a God. The real question is, prove to me that there isn't a God. Because when you look around, everywhere else identifies that there is a God, there is a creator, there is something evident there. This, there is no way for them to prove that this all happened by chance. And so we need to make sure that they know that the burden of proof is on them, not on us. All right. How can apologetics help in my daily life? First, it can strengthen my faith. Let's just have everybody else. Let's, how can apologetics help on our, in a daily basis? Keep you on alert on your daily studies, and if you're not daily studying, and you don't know what it says, then... yeah, keep you, keep you studying. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, just finishing up my undergrad, like being in a lot of science-based classes, knowing like clear arguments in my head when a professor would be saying some things, and then I don't know, I'd like would just kind of go through what I know is true and yeah. kind of go through logically in my mind. Um, and that, that helped me kind of stay clear on like where I'm, what I'm believing. Excellent. Um, we're doing a, the Truth Project at my place every other Sunday. Yep. The series is called True You, and it's is the Bible reliable? And originally, I was doing that because I wanted to prepare myself. But as we're going through the lessons, I just realized how much it just strengthens me because you realize how small you are and how great God is. Like when you see. 
certain verses in the Bible that are so specific. Yeah. And you didn't realize, whoa, like even the way that the walls of Jericho fell and the historical proof for the way that they fell, like something so small, like God is so good. And you see his faithfulness through the ages, through his people, through the people that he was, he got involved to bring the scriptures. I mean, like it's overwhelming. And you, you just get this humility. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely does keep you humble the more and more you study it. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. We, we do have an obligation to have that intelligent answer um, so that we can answer the, 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 the legitimate people that are asking the questions. What are some other things that apologetics can do for us? Anybody? It can give me courage. As you, as you gain more knowledge about it, you will want to share more about it. You're gonna, you know, you get one of those little nuggets of information, and you get excited about it, and you start telling people about it. Well, now you're gonna have to answer more questions, but you're gonna, it's gonna again go back to strengthening your faith because you're gonna find more information, and you're gonna want to share that as well. So it, it, it's a perpetuating cycle that you're gonna go through. It's gonna open up doors to witness to others. If you read any media at all, any news, anything. In, in the media today, there is not a week that goes by within the media. There's not a headline or some article about the new study that, that proves global warming or proves, uh, you know, whatever it is that you wanted to, you know, billions of years, dinosaurs, you know, new dinosaur bone found, the oldest dinosaur bone, you know, dating before the prehistoric era, and, and they're going on and on and on, right? So you can find in any media, any given week, any given day, at least one to two stories. How does it make it relevant to you? As you're having conversation with individuals that are believers or, or those that are not, you have an opportunity to take that information, which is relevant information today, and you can carry on. You can have an co intelligent conversation. You can have a way in to witness. So it opens up doors. Allows the Holy Spirit to work through me. Gives me assurance that I serve the Most High God. And again, that's we taught, you know, that you realize how small you are in the grand scheme of things. Helps me appreciate the nature and the power of God. Helps me to teach my children that it's not just stories or mythology. 80% of kids today have left the faith before college. That's a Barna research as of 2010. 80% of the youth of the church leave before college. We used to always think it was the, you know, send them to university and we lose them. They're gone before then. 40% of that 80, 50, a half, sorry, half of the 80% are gone before they even hit high school. We got a lot of work to do. Now, Santa Claus and Jesus. This is a very brief clip, but it's a very interesting telling element of where our apologetics need to start. 
busy where he can't spend time listening to you when you really want to talk to him anytime. If Santa Claus can hit every house in the world... Well, I don't believe in Santa Claus. Of course not. That's ridiculous. (laughs) That's one man flying all around the world and dropping presents out of chimney. That's ridiculous. One man hearing everybody murmur to him at the same time. That I get. And you know what else was very confusing This is his mother and his sister. Vividly was... Santa Claus and Jesus. Oh, you were so mad at us. Oh, yes. Oh. So mad at you. Why? Oh, when, when, when you, you realized found out there was, there was no, no Santa, Santa Claus. And then when I found out there was no Jesus. What <laughs> <laughs> was I pissed. All right. So we've got the very, f- one, of the, one of the most fundamental things within uh, American and North American culture. Santa Claus. Everybody does Santa Claus. And if you don't do Santa Claus, you know, what do you do? Here's your very first apologetics lesson to your children. If, if you're going to teach them that Santa Claus can do all of these things, and he knows when you've been good or bad, he knows when you're awake or sleeping, and he all of a sudden isn't real. What about the God of the Bible who knows everything? who knows when you're awake, knows when you've been good or bad. It's not a far stretch. Our first lesson in apologetics starts with our kids. The difference is they saw Santa Claus, but they haven't seen God. That's right. That's so, so now it's really mythology. Next. What's that? I've never seen Santa Claus. I just thought about it. Well, you've never seen the Santa Claus, but yes. As a, I, I never, in my, I was raised not to believe that, uh, even when I was little, like, <clears throat> excuse me, you said as a child, right, and they take pictures, you know, you take pictures of Santa Claus, well, I was terrified, I was afraid of him, and I wouldn't sit on the guy, because I was Rightfully so. and uh, sorry for the joke, but, like, I, I don't believe in it. Right, and, and, and none of us do here either, and that's the point, if, if we, but yet, there are people and there are a lot of Christians who teach their children about Santa Claus and, that, and pretend that he's real. And all of a sudden, pull the wool out from underneath them and expect us to do, believe the exact same things about God. I think also one of the problems in our daily walk is that we almost, you know, once we stop believing in Santa Claus, we almost apply that mentality to God. You know? mm-hmm. If I ask him enough for it, and I'm really good, he'll give it to me. You're absolutely right. Absolutely. God teaches us not to lie. So you're lying to your children. Yep. But there's no way that that's right. I don't care if it's, oh, you know, the presence of this, the, the, the magic of no. There's no sound. That's right. You're absolutely right. The, the lying is, is, is the biggest element because then it starts to wear away on, on the trust of you as well as a parent. Um, and, you know, we started doing this when we were... When our children were very, very young, we had heard and, and read a book on uh, the top ten lies we tell our children. Uh, the other one is, you know, you can be anything you want to be. Well, if you're four foot four, chances are you're not going to be an NBA star. So you've got to be very careful about the truths in which you tell your children. Next. What can't apologetics do? It can't save souls. 
can't make you a better Christian. Your dedication to studying is what's going to do that. Your, your dedication to serving God is going to make you that. It's not going to make you smarter. And it's not going to change somebody's mind. If they're dead set and that's it, they're, they're not going to change. You're, no matter how intelligent your argument is, you're still not going to change their mind. It's not going to give me faith. It may strengthen my faith, but it's not going to give me faith. Only God saves lives through the conviction of the sins of the whole of sins by the Holy Spirit, not us. You may have the best argument in the world, but if God does not open up their heart and mind, it will fall on deaf ears before any discussion on apologetics. We ought to be praying for open hearts and open minds beforehand. Next. All right, so now here's the real one. Science and scriptures. We've got the battle going on now. Go ahead, Mark. There's plenty of people who will say, well, it's just my faith. But that's not good enough for you. You say, no, we can basically reconcile the science with what's in Genesis. Well, we're an organization that, to put it in a nutshell, uh, is telling people that the Bible's history is true. It's history beginning in Genesis. Scientists line up overwhelmingly on one side of this issue. It would have to be an enormous conspiracy going on between scientists of all different disciplines in all different countries to have such a consensus. Does That doesn't move you? No, not at all, because from a biblical perspective, I understand why the majority would not agree with the truth. Man is a sinner. Man is in rebellion against his creator. All these scientists are sinners? Well, we have been talking to so many religious people, and many of them believe the Earth is 5,000 years old. If you're a scientist, you can't accept that. Now, you recently were the director of the Vatican Observatory, a Vatican astronomer. It's one of those terms like gay Republican. You just, <laughs> you know, you just don't expect I'm it. I'm not getting into that. No, 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 I'm not asking you to. <laughs> it's not that the church has the idea, you know, they're going to train us up so we can be the first ones out there to baptize those extraterrestrials before the Mormons get at them. <laughs> the reason is simply historical facts. I mean, John Paul II, for instance, said evolution in the Neo-Darwinian right. sense is no longer a mere hypothesis. The Pope said it. From true. The very, I mean, he said that. It's in writing. I still don't see, understand why it's important for there to have to have been a situation on Earth where man coexisted with dinosaurs, only really in the Flintstones. Is someone talking about me? And that Raquel Welch movie, does man ever coexist with dinosaurs? Why is that important for your salvation or your morality? If you're saying this part over here, it says God made land animals and man on the same day is not true, then ultimately, why should I believe this bit over here? The Christian scriptures were written between about 2,000 years before Christ mm -hmm. to about 200 years after Christ. Right. That's it. Modern science came to be with Galileo up through Newton, Newton up yeah. through Einstein, what we know as modern science. Right okay, is in that period. How in the world could there be any science in Scripture? There cannot be. Just the two historical periods are separated by so much. The Scriptures are not teaching science. It's very hard for me to accept not just a literal interpretation of Scripture, but a fundamentalist approach to religious belief. <laughs> it's kind of a plague. It presents itself as science, and it's not. 
God is an infinite God who is working in ways we don't always understand. You don't think that's a cop-out? He is God. Are you God? No. All right. We can see the battle line drawn really clearly. We have science versus the scriptures. What's wrong with this argument? It's a straw man argument. Very much. It's, it's something that's proffered in the hope of creating a conflict, and then you're going to argue against it. The, the assumption is invalid from the get-go. Correct. Correct. And, and what does he do to back it up? He gets a Vatican astronomer to prove his argument. Again, a straw man argument, right? It's, it's, a, very, it's a very invalid argument. We can see how people can be swayed if they already don't believe that. All it does is reinforce their belief, right? How can, how can, the Bible doesn't teach science, does it? Does it? Oh, of course it does. It doesn't know how to use the word science, you're right. The problem is we don't teach the Bible as science. Correct. Correct. It's not meant to be a science text. The Bible is not a book on angelology. Nevertheless, what the Bible says about angels is true. Right. <coughs> well, the Bible itself says there's no science that is falsely called that because it's not really true. Right. Anybody else? Any other points on this one? Well, what we consider to be classical science is a discipline that's been contrived by human thinking. And so it's easy for people to say, well, the Bible doesn't conform to the way we've defined the discipline. What kind of an argument is that? You're absolutely right. And the other element that we have to keep in mind is 98% of the largest scientific discoveries that we have today come from Christians. People that came looking at science from a biblical worldview. So, obviously, there, can't, there is an element of science and scripture that coexist. Where did you get that statistic? 98%. If you look at history, historically, if you look at the, all of your major discoveries, uh, from, from Newton to, I mean, Einstein obviously wasn't, um, but there was always elements of a creator belief there. Um, but if you look at Einstein, you look at any of the, uh, the discoveries in technology, the, the light bulb, um, any of those, any of the major discoveries within our modern world were done. And I can, get you the, I can get you where it came from. I don't have it off the top of my head. I don't have much on the top of my head, so. And, and, and the fact is that what we have here is their argument that everything that they believe in is science. They say it's all facts we, by science. We go back to the definition of fact, right? <laughs> And, and then we talk about consensus. We talk about this conspiracy, right? Let's go to the next one, because I'm not going to discuss conspiracy. We'll let this discuss it. Many of you may recognize this. What about academic freedom? I mean, can't we just talk about this? They, their reply is that science is not a democratic process. Oh, really? And that there is a consensus view 
But wait and a minute, but, we are to subscribe to but the wait a second, but view. Darwin challenged the consensus view, and that's how we got Darwinism. If Darwin wanted to challenge the consensus today, how would he do it? Science isn't a hobby for rich aristocrats anymore. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. And if you want a piece of the pie, you've got to be a good comrade. Scientific ideas. How we get them to you, the people. Every idea must be inspected to ensure that it is safe. All theories must pass through a series of checkpoints. First, the academy. Getting a controversial theory through the academy can be dangerous. Few people know this better than Congressman Mark Souter. He uncovered a targeted campaign led by individuals within the Smithsonian and the National Center for Science Education to destroy Dr. Sternberg's credibility. If you want peer reviews, if, if you want to be published, if you want to go to respected institutions, the, the core view does not tolerate dissent. There's kind of a, this is the way it is, and anybody who's a dissenter should be squashed. Are you going to be on my side if I let you up? Sure, take sure. I'm on your side. Just let me up. I'll do anything you say. Souter isn't the only one who has witnessed the Academy's tactics. Journalist Larry Witham has seen similar behavior during his 25 years of covering the evolution controversy. Once you're, you're thick in science, you can't question the paradigm. But if you want to get grants, if you want to be elected to high positions, if you want to be get awards as a promoter of public education of science, you can't question the paradigm. People cannot be trusted to form their own opinion. All right. So we have, uh, it, and you may obviously recognize Ben Stein. Um, that's from his movie Expelled. Um, and he's going about to make the, the argument that within the confines of science, uh, you know, the science world as we know it, um, there is no discussion, no dissension from evolution. It's simply a matter of this is the way it is. And he's proving, uh, he proves and throughout the whole movie, um, of the different elements within that. Next. You'll recognize this individual. This is Richard Dawkins, one of the most... Uh, I, I, I'm trying to use the word for him. Um, he, he is the most vehement opposition to Christianity. Um, he is, he's taken it, his, make it, made it his life goal to try to take away faith from anybody possible, and he's one of the, uh, the loudest voices in the atheistic um, world pushing for, again, suppressing uh, the concept of intelligence design and creation as a whole. It is, it is completely right to say that since the evidence for evolution is so absolutely, totally overwhelming, nobody who looks at it could possibly doubt that, if they're saying, uh, and not stupid. So the only remaining possibility is that they're ignorant, and, the most, and most people who don't believe in evolution are indeed ignorant. But the people I spoke with weren't ignorant. They were highly credentialed scientists. So there had to be something else going on here. So you think the whole theory of evolution is false or just certain parts of it? Well, again, evolution is a slippery word. I would say minor changes within species happen. But Darwin didn't write a book called How Species, How Existing Species Change Over Time. He wrote a book called The Origin of Species. 
He purported oh. to show how this same process I say. leads to new species, in I fact, see. every species. And the evidence for that grand claim is, in my opinion, almost totally lacking. How does Darwin or, or Darwinism say that life began? Well, he didn't know, and in fact, nobody knows. So Darwinism, strictly defined, starts after the origin of life and deals only with living things. Well, how can there be a theory about life without a theory about how life began? Well, a, a grand overarching evolutionary story, of course, does include the origin of life, but Darwin's theory doesn't begin until you have the first cell. Well, does someone have a theory about how life began? Oh, we do. We got a lot of, a lot of theories, but they're also facts, and that is, that is a true fact. Um, we do have the answer. We do have the opportunity. Um, the one thing I really want to point out here, first of all, the the use at the beginning by, by Dawkins, the absolute overwhelming, I mean, he's really building up this argument. He's, he's using really strong terms for evidence that doesn't even exist. We, have, we do have the evidence. If you, if you do the study in it, you can, you can actually start refuting some of these claims. It's amazing when you, when you look at what's out there, how much information is out there, and it's it is stacking up on our favor more and more. Uh, so you really have to, uh, you have to make sure that you look at that. And then you look at the last part, which is define your terms. He talks about evolution. Well, the, the word, the definition of evolution, needs to be very clearly defined when you begin a discussion with somebody who is discussing creation versus evolution. Because if you're talking of microevolution, adaptation, change over time within a species, there's evidence of that. But typically it's in the degradation of the species, not in making it better. Um, and then you, you look at the second element, which is the concept of defining the question, asking the right question. Did he, uh, did he write a, a book about you know, change over time within a species? No. This is, the, this is the, what he wrote, and, and know, knowing that element of it. There's a number of people that, that are concerned when we start getting into apologetics. Are we using our own human intellect versus that of the Holy Spirit's guiding? Let's look at some of the arguments, some of the questions about apologetics, some of the excuses why we don't want to use apologetics. Do I, need to really, do I really need to know all that stuff in order to be, for apologetics to be effective? I don't have time to learn it, so it doesn't really matter. I can't possibly remember everything about apologetics, so should I even start? How do we answer any of those questions? I kind of wanted to say this earlier. I just think um, something I've been convicted about recently that even as like a student, I get lazy when, when it comes to like wanting to study this, like these things. And God's really convicting me that he wants to engage our entire being. That includes our intellect. It's not just... We like kind of separate like spirituality and like this emotion, all this other stuff with like just like logic and intellect. And God wants to engage all of that. And that like overall then leads us closer and more intimate like with Christ when our intellect is involved. Absolutely. How else can we answer some of these other questions? Uh, the word of God says that the Holy Spirit's going to remind us what we need. Excellent. Uh, if we haven't read it, we don't know it. 
We're, we're going to pull a Shroud of Turin argument out. Right. That's how we're. Gonna, that's what's going to happen. I think a perfect example is what you were talking about. How the person you work with or whatever was coming to you with questions. Sometimes that's the place you start because you don't really have a situation until you're faced with it. And it's okay to say, I don't know. It is. It definitely is okay to say, I don't know. Anybody else? Uh, how many people don't like that guy? Richard Dawkins? At the beginning. How many people don't or hate him? <laughs> Bill Maher or any of these people that, are, that you're confronting. It shouldn't be a we versus them. Jesus Christ told us to love your enemies. Yep. Love your enemies. When he was confronted with people that came to him, whether it was Satan who used scripture, uh, whether whatever it was, he, he you, you have to view it in a different light than, yeah, I need to know all these apologetics. That guy's smarter than me. I'm not as intelligent. You know, was, were, were our forefathers intelligent and smart? Did they live to defend their faith the way we are trying to do it? Are we letting God work through us in what He said? Do we believe His Word? We have to be able to fully believe that God will, Spirit will tell us what we need when the time comes, and that we really love these people. They're, they're misguided. They're so misguided by Satan that they don't realize until probably their very last breath, hey, I'm, I'm wrong. I was wrong my whole life. You're, you're stealing my thunder. Sorry. All right, we're working. We're working our way there, brother Doug. We're working our way. I think if we if we would take these questions and apply them to other areas of our life, we kind of realize that they're sort of foolish questions to ask ourselves. I mean, whether or not you know you go to a university or college, or even if you take up a trade, you know, do I really need to learn all that stuff in order for say you know being an electrician to be effective? You're, ab you're absolutely right, and that's the reason I put them on there. Uh, it's, you're absolutely right. If you're not going to do it, you may as well not pursue anything in your life and just, you know, sit on the couch all day. That's right. Students tend to put things in extremes. So, you know, like we were talking earlier about pitting science against religion. And so they pit, you know, sometimes faith against intelligence by going back to the point of loving the Lord with all your mind. So it's not really, yep. the, the common problem, it's not, it's not an either-or situation. It's like a both-and situation. That's you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And the other thing also is, you know, especially about we have to, to love the people who can't hate them. And, and that's why, that's why the, our whole position must be not about us versus them. It's not about winning. It's not winning the argument. Remember, that was earlier. We don't have to necessarily hate them to want to win them because we want to be better. Again, it's not even winning the argument. It's winning the soul to Christ. Yeah, as far as excuses, I, I don't think we have any good especially when we, come, when we come back to that 80% number. Yep. I have uh, three kids in the age of, age of uh, middle school and going to high school, and they're going to be faced with these things that are presented as facts to them. Yep. Um, and, and if I, they come home and they present these as facts to me, uh, I need to reorient them and point them to the truth. Correct. I need to know it myself. <coughs> Absolutely. I mean, I need to Excellent be able to share point. with oh, those that ask questions, but more importantly, for me personally, my own flesh and blood. That's why I showed this, the, the Santa Claus one earlier. Your first apologetics come within your own household. Excellent. Next. So in the pitfalls, can we get too excited about apologetics? The answer is yes. We can, we, 
when we get really excited about a thing, we want to tell everybody about it, and we often forget that us versus them mentality, right? We want to, we want to prove them wrong. We're going to win this argument now because we got some, we got a few, few tools in our tool vault. We know how to use it, and all of a sudden we get the handyman special, right? Uh, so we got to be very careful. When should I stop arguing about apologetics? Again, a loaded question. You're not arguing. You're making an argument, but you're not arguing. All right, we need to make sure that, that we have that very clear distinction. The other thing you have to be very careful of, how can I get reliable, reliable information? Because there's a lot of garbage out there under the, under the auspice of apologetics, and some people may be a little overzealous in trying to enhance the facts and evidence that's there um, to try to prove their points. So we have to be very discerning when it comes to the information that's out there. There are lots of um, fossils found, fossil, pictures of fossils all over, the, uh, all over the North America, fossils of, of giants that lived. And there have been actual fossils, and this is, the, this is the hard part. There have been actual fossils, but the pictures you see on the websites, I'm going to say, I'm just ballparking it here, probably between 60 and 75% of the pictures on the websites have been doctored. So if you're going to use that argument, be prepared to identify what the difference is. Where can I go to get more information? My email address is on at the end of this. I did not have time to um, actually put out, print out a list of all of the, uh, all the reliable sites that I have, but email me, write down my email address, and I will gladly give you, send out the link to where, where we need to go. I just wanted to have a closing comment. Often I'll end my conversations with, you know what, I just, I just encourage you to seek the truth and put the responsibility on them. Yes. Because, I mean, the scripture says you will seek and you will find. And often when you put that responsibility on them, now they don't <clears throat> even feel attacked. Like, they feel this burden, like, wow, this is, this is my responsibility to find out whether it's true. And often right. that's very effective in yeah. them to search. Is that me? Yeah, it is. Look at that. It's, we got 10 minutes. That's why I said it. All right. I'm like, who's ringing? Oh, it's me. All right. So we're just going to fly through this. We're not going to dissect this one. Play it. Again, he goes to an actor playing Jesus down in Florida to ask questions. The Let me ask you some questions about your business. Yes. We're really the Jesus business. God is super powerful. He could do anything. Sure. Why doesn't he just obliterate the devil and therefore, therefore get rid of evil in the world? He will. He will? Yeah, What's he out. waiting for? End times. But when why play it out like that? Why make it a game? The second coming. Well, it's not necessarily a game. A day is like a thousand, thousand years in God's eyes, it says in the Bible. If you want to look at it, just like two days ago, Christ died. But I know that he is so far and beyond any of our ways that he can work the worst situation for his good. What was the Holocaust? Why was that good? You know, God had a plan for that. Maybe it's really? to, to cause I wonder if you would have thought that evil. if you were one of the people being pushed into an oven. Well, you know what? It's like trying to explain to Ant how a TV works. That's God's ways are so much higher than ours. There's no way you can understand. When he came, he says, I've come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. You boil all Jesus. those Levitical laws down to two things. No other gods before me, Bill. But Jesus, and love Lord, those, all your heart. having no other gods before you, that's not moral. 
-hmm. There's nothing moral about that. It's mm -hmm. just it's just something a jealous God would do. And it does say that our God is a jealous God. But your God is jealous? That seems so ungodlike that God would have such a petty human emotion. He's also I know people who have gotten right. over jealous. Well, there's let alone also, God. There's two sides of the coin. He's a just God. And he's also a merciful God. He can't no, stand he our sin, but he also... the first five books of the Bible wiping out people. <laughs> well, that's what he chose to do. His ways are higher than ours, Bill. Maybe our sure. thinking should be higher. That's a good point. God has got this God-sized hole in your life. You can fit that with any position, drugs, sex, whatever you want. It is not going to fill it. Can I try? You can try all you want. You're going to end up hurting yourself <laughs> and damaging yourself and burn yourself up. I said Christ was about not judging people. That's true. Isn't that a judgment there? No, You no. don't even know me and you're telling me I need no, no, to fill that, a hole no, that, in my heart with no, drugs No, no, that's why that's, I'm not talking about you. I'm just saying anyone in general is to See, if I was him. God, I would create people without the hole to begin with. Well, have you ever had a little small voice in the back of your mind say some things? Okay. We've all had that. That's, called that's the Holy not Spirit. God, that's you. That's called the Holy Spirit. Oh, the Holy Spirit. Feel this wind right now? Yeah. Okay, where is it? Yeah, you don't it's know, called right? wind. Okay, that's not like the Holy Spirit. It's a monotheistic religion, but there's three of them. Just like water can be ice, steam, and water. I see. It's different forms, different shapes, and different purposes. There's the space god and he's himself, right. and he sent himself on a suicide mission, and, he, you know, he's a god, but he has a kid, he's a single parent. It's just silly. But when you put it in the uh, water analogy, I could see that, you know, those ladies there, where they heard that the first time, they were well, like, done, sold. Oh, you had me at Ice Cube. <laughs> Moving on. Um, does it ever bother you that the story of a man mm -hmm who was born of a virgin, was resurrected. Your bio mm -hmm. was something that was going around the Mediterranean for at least a thousand years. We've got Krishna, who was in India a thousand years before Christ. Krishna was a carpenter, born of a virgin, baptized in a river. Are you saying that was written in history? That was written down in well, history? Is what you're saying? Absolutely. There's yeah. the, the Persian god Mithra, 600 years before Christ, born December 25th, before miracles, resurrected on the third day, known as the Lamb, the Way, the Truth, the Light, the yeah. Savior, Messiah. Stop! Blasphema! All I know is that I, can, I don't go by that, here, say that, sir. I go by the Word of God. I know that's what I believe. Well, I believe it. Believe because it, it's yes. True. Okay, it's not that it's but not. There's a difference between truth and what you believe. But in the Bible, it tells us that all things are possible with okay. God, okay? <laughs> Study the religions of the Mediterranean region for a thousand years before. Many of the gods were born on December 25th. It's not a new one. It's, it's not. It's, but it's not. It's funny you should bring that up because, of course, in Star Wars Episode One: Phantom Menace, Anakin is born to a virgin. And really? people see that and they say, wait a second, where have we heard that before? Right. It's not original. But when the Jesus story happened, wasn't original. How's... Let me ask you a question. Let's say, if you take the side that this is all made up. I do. What if you're wrong? <laughs> what if you're wrong? No answer. Again, asking a logical question within the confines. I don't want to dissect this. There's a whole hour's worth to go through here. Um, I also have some very good peer-reviewed information, some documented, uh, very well-written discussions about the multiple, you know, multiplicity of the gods prior to um, in the Mediterranean region. For those that want to, feel free to get a hold of me. Here's... Rule number five, and this is, this is the thunder you were, you were almost stealing there, Doug. Attitude, not argument, is the key. Rule number five, all right? So here's what we've got. I've got my phone going off again. Thank, thank you for being Christ-like, not just Christian. 
Give this a play quickly. It's not very long. This is not right Thank after you for being Christ-like and not just Christian. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> hey, my wallet. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what we have is we have Bill Maher acknowledging, even though their arguments were terrible, even though they couldn't answer anything that he was giving, they did it in love. And their attitude was he acknowledged Christ-like, not just Christian. And that is the, that's the wrap-up for us. That's the thing we need to remember. Attitude is the key, not the argument. The way in which you go about it. If you're going to go about it and use apologetics to make somebody feel small and stupid, then you're not, you're not doing a very good job in, in presenting your argument. What you need to do is you need to present it in a way that your attitude is showing you with meekness and fear that you're, that you're doing that. So let's wrap up. The five basic rules. When using extra-biblical information, make sure that it's not disputed within Christianity. Number two, if they ask you a biblical question, answer out of the Bible when possible. Don't ask a question you don't have an answer to. The burden of proof is on them, not you. And attitude, not argument, is the key. Remember, we're fishers of men. Our job is to catch them. God's job is to clean them. It's not our, it's not our job to do the, the work when you're how do I say this somebody who's at your school or workplace somebody who you associate with somebody who you're witnessing to yep witnessing to yep um, I use that term loosely but um, like if you're bringing them you want to bring them to your church to church yep. right uh, is our church a denomination I don't really know. I don't think it is. You're talking about defining the, a terminology. Well, usually they ask me a question. They ask me, well, where do you go to church? And I'm like, uh, great. How do I answer this? Apostolic Christian Church? Well, there's two apostolic Christian churches. So you're sort of stuck, right? And yeah. that goes back way, way, way and to a split. But you say Apostolic Christian Church Nazarene, and they ask you, well, what's that? <laughs> so well, that's not about... That's not a bad element because now you have a chance to answer the questions. Um, I, think, I think the key is having a ready answer because you know that question is going to be asked. Um, you can give a description of the church um, rather than giving the name. You can give, there's all kinds of different ways to approach that rather than just say, here's the, the name of the church. You know, here's our flyer. Here's our statement of faith. Come if you want. You know, th that's a very basic um, approach, whereas you can, you can take a little time to spend and explain, you know, here's what we believe in, here's what our, what our belief is, here's what we, what we do, and describe the church itself, not so much de define it as a, within the confines of denomination. Does that make sense? Okay. Here's some resources. Please write down email and cell phone, whatever, I don't really care. Um, if you need to get a hold of me, please get a hold of me. Um, I will gladly share any resources that I have. Anything that I have, I will gladly provide accordingly. Any questions? Last one. Hope, I hope each of you desire to learn more to defend the faith as vehemently as the atheists defend theirs. Because theirs is, is a faith as well. 
So we just we have to keep that in mind. Just because they claim to don't not to believe in anything, they still have a lot of faith to be to believe that there isn't anything. Thank you very much.